You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Francis Coppola, writer and speaker on banking, finance, and economics, and Michael Guyad, portfolio manager at Torasso Investments. Uh, but first, the day's top stories. Multiple sources reporting that the Russian military has continued its advance in Ukraine, particularly in the south of the country, where Russian forces have reportedly encircled Mariupol between the Russian-controlled Crimea and the Russian border. Uh, let's take a look really quickly at markets, what's happening here. Uh, S&P off about half a point on the day, closing at uh, 4,363. NASDAQ off pretty considerably, off a point and a half on the day, 1.56%, settling down at 13,537. Russell 2000 also off 1.75%, uh, uh, settling down at 2,000. 22. Uh, much to talk about here. Uh, let's pull in Francis Coppola. Francis, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, this is our first conversation here on the top of the show here on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what's happening broadly in these markets. Frame out the macroeconomic landscape. Okay. Well, um, before this unfortunate fracas in Ukraine, um, we were facing an increasingly inflationary environment. Uh, and back in March 2020, I was a rather lonely voice saying that I thought that there would be inflation as the world emerged from the pandemic. And events have rather proved me right, um, that there was always going to be supply-side damage. And it's far more difficult, really, for governments to protect against the kind of damage that we've seen, so disruption of supply chains and things like that, um, than it is for them to support the demand side, which they've pre pretty much done, un um, not just through monetary policy. Obviously, we've had enormous quantities of QE, um, but also through fiscal policy, so support um, in the United States, um, extensions to unemployment benefit and the STEMI checks, um, and in Europe, various forms of um, support um, through jobs. So um, in, U in the UK, we had the furlough scheme. In Germany, they have things like what we call Kurzarbeit, which is similar, um, which basically supports people in their jobs. So they're not working, but they get paid. And so at the same time as, as we had that during the pandemic, we had um, obviously quite a lot of suppression of the demand side, um, sort of close down of um, service industries particularly, um, and quite a considerable shutdown in sort of purchases of discretionary goods. You could get them online, but you couldn't go to shops. Um, well, that was during the pandemic itself. And then, and as we reopen, of course, we have people starting to buy things again, starting to um, uh, um, buy not just goods, but also services. We're seeing manufacturing picking up. We're seeing production picking up. We're seeing demand, demand picking up on the producer side. Um, but the supply, the supply side, the international um, the supply chains and so forth have taken a while to recover. Shipping rates have been very high, and that feeds through into inflation um, with a bit of a lag um, because of the lengths of contracts involved. So we've had quite an so because of that, we've got quite an inflationary shock, which is going to take quite some time to unwind. And that. 
Um, the debate around inflation is all about what central banks are going to do with that. There's little justification now for continuing with the loose monetary policy that we've seen for the last two years. And in fact, arguably, not even for the loose monetary policy we've seen for the last decade or more. Mm. Um, I think we're going to be seeing interest rates rising um, um, really in, across the Western world. And that's before we even get into this question of Ukraine and what is going to be quite an inflationary shock because of the effect on um, the oil price, on gas prices, that's obviously natural gas prices, um, and feeding through into consumer prices, so the cost of gasoline at the pumps and the cost of energy to heat houses, um, and um, and also into electricity prices through the production of energy with um, gas-powered um, uh, power stations and things like that. It is a, a comprehensive shock that touches all areas of the economy and will feed through into consumer prices. Um, there will also, because of the sanctions that have been applied, there's going to be disruption to supply chains again. Remember, we hadn't yet recovered from the pandemic supply chain disruption, and we're now going to disruption, disrupt them again. So again, we're going to see inflation picking up from that source as well. So in a way, I, I keep thinking we're almost back to kind of where we were in the early 1970s, where we had a succession of wars that really pushed inflation up. Um, we had the Vietnam War followed by the Yom Kippur War, and then later in the 1970s, we also had the Iran-Iraq War, but but it was really the early wars. And I'm wondering whether we're going to end up in this kind of in, um, 1970s accelerating inflation situation again because of everything that's going on. Um, we might avoid it, I don't know. But um, I do think we are seeing the fracturing of some things that we've taken for granted for a very long time, um, not just the low interest rates of the last decade, but in fact, the kind of stability, if you like, that we've rather taken for granted, I think, now since the mid-1990s. I think that's beginning to change and we're going to see a much more volatile macroeconomic environment dominated by inflation, by rising um, interest rates. And, and I think also potentially, because this again tends to be the effect of sanctions, of the kind of currency war that we're fighting, um, we're going to also see um, stagnating growth, I think. Yeah, Francis, uh, that's a very sobering perspective uh, and top level picture that you've laid out there. So effectively, you have it's sort of this regime, the 2007 2008 financial crisis, you have this extraordinary period of loose monetary policy following it. Uh, you begin to see a period where we start to raise rates a little bit, uh, still well below where a Taylor rule would suggest. And then you have the COVID pandemic. And now you have an extraordinary regime of not just uh, loose or ultra accommodative monetary policy, but also fiscal policy, adding uh, an additional uh, tailwind to the inflationary story. Francis, as you look here across the story that you've laid out, uh, what are some of the indicators that you're looking at? What are you watching? What are your data points? Uh, what are the gauges on your screen that you're able to read the situation from? Well, one of my favorite charts is actually the Baltic Dry um, and, and other indicator of, of shipping costs, but the Baltic Dry is, is a particularly good one, which um, actually in, in, um, was resembling a church spire. It shot up like a rocket and then came to and it's been coming down again really quite fast, which is a good thing in a way. But that inflationary shock um, from the enormous rise in shipping rates 
um, is going to take a while to feed through because shipping contracts do tend to tend to have to be rather long dated. Um, there's a piece of research out today by the Bank of England, which says that the inflationary shock from the that sharp increase in 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 shipping costs in 2021 um, will take a year really to feed through. So they're talking about inflation staying elevated. And sort of really until towards the end of 2022, um, I personally think because of because we're now going to see shipping costs rocketing up again, um, that it's going to be more than that. Yeah, it's never a good sign when you're talking about the Baltic Dry Index. I remember in the 2007-2008 uh, period, we were talking about it because we saw this collapse of global trade, uh, mm -hmm. and it's a serious an inflection point uh, to see what's happening in macroeconomic conditions. For instance, another thing that I thought was rather interesting was that we had uh, Fed Chair Powell suggesting uh, that he would support a 25 basis point uh, hike uh, in contradistinction from a 50 basis point hike, uh, which the more aggressive members uh, uh, had wanted, the, the more hawkish members uh, of the Fed had suggested. Uh, today, we had Cleveland Fed President Mester suggesting that the conflict in Ukraine could be inflationary. Do we run into this period uh, where you know the Fed winds up between a rock and a hard place, the two uh, legs of the dual mandate kind of are in conflict with each other and they're and they're damned if they do and damned if they don't on both sides of the mandate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, this is the old stagflation dilemma, isn't it? Really, yeah. where we man that we got ourselves into in the 1970s when we had high inflation, um, very poor growth, and high unemployment all at the same time. And for a, a for if we think, I mean, we didn't have a, a central bank kind of with a dual mandate with with the kind of inflation tar targeting mandates that they do now um, at that time. But if we had then how would a central bank like the Fed with a dual mandate have handled that? Which does it focus on? Does it give more um, credence to inflation or does it give more credence to unemployment? It is actually quite a difficult trade-off. Um, the Phillips curve has been uh, which is which kind of balances this trade-off between inflation and unemployment has been, shall we say, in abeyance or, or certain, certainly less important in many ways for really the whole of the last decade, to, to the point where people were starting to wonder whether it be, was permanently broken. And but if we see the resurgence of both unemployment um, and inflation, I think we are going to see central banks having to make those kind of trade-off decisions again. Um, and it may be that we'll have to tolerate either higher inflation for quite some time, or we'll have to tolerate higher unemployment for quite some time. And 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 the drive of this, and, and the reason reason why I, 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 I kind of agree with you that, that central banks are stuck between rock and a hard place, people will expect them to raise rates. Mm. But um, they're dealing with external shocks. Um, you know, it, so it's all a question of saying, with these external shocks, we have the Ukraine war, we have a massively rising oil price, we're going to face elevated gas prices. Um, right. We've got the effect of all these sanctions. We've got yeah. um, disruptions in supply chains again. Um, we've got all of these external factors that are going to push up inflation. Is this something that it is sensible for central banks to try and deal with by raising interest rates? Yeah. Um, because, well, um, well. because that kind of presupposes that you have domestic drivers for your inflation. 
that you have some kind of um, expectations building up that 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 um, prices are going to rise and therefore wages should rise and so forth. Yeah. That's what central banks will be looking for, I think. And I think it's going to be quite hard to discern with these external shocks and with, you know, with them being hit from lots of different quarters, as it were. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Francis, we're going to have to have you back for a full hour to do an explainer on the Phillips curve, uh, which shows the <laughs> inverse relationship between uh, inflation and unemployment. But I want to bring in Michael Gaia to talk about this from the perspective uh, through the lens of capital markets. And I'm really interested. This is a great show today because we have someone at the top of the show to set up the broader macroeconomic framework. And then to have Michael Gaia come in and talk to us from uh, a markets perspective. Michael, what do you see happening right now? What's your big picture thesis on what we're looking at? So I'll add to to Francis's point that uh, she was not the only one making the argument for uh, inflation back in in April of 2020. I had authored a piece where I said that the only way out is either hyperinflation or defaulting to the Fed. And this was as we were coming out of the COVID crash. And I'm saying that because it was very clear that they're going to either overreact and add a tremendous amount of debt, which will ultimately create the inflation we're seeing now, uh, or uh, everyone's going to basically be, uh, again, defaulting to the Fed because the Fed's going to be the lender of only resorts. So a couple of things on the current market dynamic. I know this sounds strange. I've made this argument continuously on Twitter throughout Lead Lag Report. We have not seen risk off, folks. What we've seen in this decline is not traditional risk off. Risk off is not about direction. It's about conditions that favor an accident. In other words, it's where an environment results in a potential tail event, right, which is a significant decline. It's been a very aggressive decline, but it's not been one where you have credit spreads winding in a meaningful way. It's been an aggressive decline, but it's not one where you see convexity with treasuries massively outperforming equities. You've seen a couple of days here and there. Today's one example where you see, for example, TLT, the long-duration treasury ETF, strongly positive while equities are down, meaning the long end falls. Yesterday was the exact opposite. Market had a huge rally. Yields rose and and treasuries sold off. So I, I think what we've seen here is a very unusual dislocation across the board in all asset classes. Here comes Russia, here comes Ukraine, here comes war. And now we might be re-entering a more traditional risk-off environment. But it's still not clear just yet that from a market-based perspective, we are on the precipice of another leg lower. The reason I'm saying that is, hmm. keep in mind okay, that usually when you have big declines, there are certain uh, indicators, let's call them the four horsemen of defense. Okay, Those would be utilities, when they outperform, that tends to precede major corrections, crashes. Only now is that starting to happen at utilities outperforming equities. Healthcare outperforming uh, the S&P, same deal. Only now starting to show some outperformance. Uh, consumer staples, same deal. So the three most defensive high dividend sectors of the market, they tend to uh, outperform up more, down less in advance of major declines. Uh, the fourth one is lumber. Now, on my Twitter profile, I've got a you know, lumber and gold eyes, and and I'm presenting actually the CFA Dallas presentation next week about this. Lumber has been a very, very strong here. Okay, and I understand people are expecting that lumber prices will keep going higher because housing's strong because you know war is going to result in some kind of re uh, uh, restocking of of raw materials to build 
back things back up. But the reality is, as long as housing is strong, that's hard to that's a hard backdrop for equities to really fall hard under, right? Mm-hmm. So most major tail events are preceded by housing weakness. You have not seen that yet. Most housing weakness is preceded by lumber weakness. You haven't seen that yet either, right? So I, I caution people, and I keep making this point that this is a wildly uncertain period because as bearish as everyone is, there is an argument to be made that maybe equities do climb the wall of worry. But having said that, it does seem like we're now transitioning towards a more traditional risk-off period in the short term. Yeah. Michael, two questions for you. Uh, the first of which we were actually talking about offline, which is what happens if these historical uh, correlations that we've seen uh, start to break down? What happens if we're in a regime shift period where the things that have been true since the 2008 or post-2008 period uh, no longer hold? Uh, and second, from a basic portfolio construction theory, give uh, our viewers a framework on how uh, professionals think about the split between equities and bonds. We've heard about 60-40 portfolio for many years. Tell us what you think, uh, whether the 60-40 portfolio is in fact dead, uh, and what you think about in terms of asset allocation between fixed income and equities. Okay. So first, let's hit on this correlation issue. Correlations always change. It's just a function of which time frame you're looking at. I can't tell you how many people think that gold is correlated to rising dollar or falling dollar, to inflation, to deflation. Correlations change. There's an average, right? And and the key is to figure out what the average is over some persistent period of time. But there's always going to be these kind of spurious noise aspects to correlations. So the correlation, let me take a step back. I'm known for having published five different research studies that won these different awards, right? That's kind of how I built, built my name in, uh, over the last several years. And these research papers all document how do you tell if conditions favor an accident? What are leading indicators to risk off events? The joke about the five research studies, the two Dow awards, the three name award papers, is they they all are related to interest rates. The correlation there being that interest rate sensitive groups, because they are telling you about the demand for money, will tend to move in advance of some kind of a slowdown in the market or some kind of advance in the market. So to that extent, utilities, staples, healthcare, even the VIX, even moving averages, lumber, all that relates in some way, shape, or form to the demand for money changing. Okay, and those areas will see it first. If that correlation breaks, if the relationship of interest rates as a tell to market sentiment, if that changes, and that's something that's been in place for much longer than 2008, I mean, that's core to capitalism, right, the demand for money. If that breaks, I would argue to you, it's everybody here, we have much bigger things to worry about than our portfolios, because it would suggest capitalism is broken. And maybe it is. Okay, But I'm, I'm trying to make an argument here that I don't think you can bet on correlations changing in terms of the relationship of interest rates to the market, uh, because if that's the case, then there is no market. All right, that's that's number one. Now, on this 60-40 point, I know this is talked about and beaten to death conversationally, yeah. right? Look, the reality is nobody's prepared for 60-40 for both bonds and stocks to no, not work. Nobody's prepared for an environment where nothing is working. Uh, you can argue, well, what about the 70s? Okay, but in the 70s, you didn't have the same amount of debt to GDP that you have now. Right, so you're you're in a much nastier situation in terms of overall leverage. the The golden rule of diversification is that if you want to figure out how to properly invest, you have to be in investments that you hate. <laughs> Everyone has loved sixty forty. Why? Because stocks and bonds both made money. Right? <laughs> why? Why now does everybody suddenly talk about gold? It's the area that's the only thing that's diversifying now. Gold is the only asset class and the dollar, which is diversifying. Pretty sure people hate those two asset classes. 
All right. So my, my suggestion here is that if you're going to try to figure out what to do with your portfolio, you've got to be in the things which nobody wants to touch, the things which aren't performing over long periods of time because they're not sexy. They're not interesting. Gold is not really interesting. The dollar is not really interesting. Bitcoin's interesting. But last I checked, Bitcoin's pretty correlated to equities. Yeah, and correlations, and correlations change. We're, you know, we're going to have to see if that correlation breaks down because the, you know, the most passionate advocates of Bitcoin uh, have long, uh, have long uh, posited that, in fact, they would see an inverse correlation when there was risk in U.S. equity markets that it would become a risk off trade. As you say, that hasn't been the point. Maybe we saw that a little bit a few days ago, or at least the correlation is starting to weaken. That's going to be a really fascinating thing to watch, which gets back to your point, Michael, about how correlations change. It's in their nature. It's what they do. Uh, boy, this has been the fastest 20 minutes in financial television. Uh, we have so much to talk about, but we've gotten so much uh, good information in here uh, in this conversation. But I wanted to ask a few questions uh, from our viewers. And by the way, if you're watching uh, on Twitter, on YouTube, please drop your questions in uh, and we'll get to them here on the show. The first question uh, that I see in front of me is from Ralph Humphrey. This comes to us from the Real Vision site. Uh, and it's to Francis, which is, Francis, what's your view on European banks? This has always been uh, kind of a, a fascinating, a grimly fascinating question whenever I see it come in. Oh goodness, um, European banks. Um, <laughs> well, well, I, I might kind of divide them into two groups: the ones that are exposed to Russia and the ones that aren't, <laughs> because obviously quite a lot of, um, say, Austrian banks are are Russia facing, and they potentially are facing quite a difficult time uh, ahead. Um, but I think European banks, more generally. Um, the big problem for them is really the outlook for the eurozone, which isn't that good um, growth-wise. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen America storming ahead after all this stimulus. The eurozone has tied itself into a fiscal straitjacket, and actually, although it gave a fair amount of support during the pandemic, has dialed it back rather rapidly. And the um, European Central Bank is is getting back into um, trying to keep the show on the road mode. Again, right. which suggests that it won't proceed as fast as other banks in dialing back its own stimulus, because um, the growth outlook for the eurozone as a whole is not that good, and that suggests interest will interest rates will stay lower in the eurozone than they will elsewhere, and that will hit the profitability of European banks. And this is uh, because of net interest margins declining. Yeah, absolutely. Net interest margins have not been holding that up that well, and in fact, um, you know, German banks particularly had had quite quite a severe hit to their profitability long before the pandemic, um, because of the constant squeeze on interest rates. Not least, I have to say, because of Europe of ECB QE and the fact the German bonds um, at the short ends were trading negative for years. Um, you know that that tends to hit hit um, banks' profit margins as well, simply because of the arbitrage effect. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
I wanted to ask Michael a question, uh, sort of related to one that I asked you earlier, Francis, which is, Michael, what are you looking at? I know you look at a lot of high-frequency data series. What are you looking at in this market uh, to get your sense of the positioning uh, and to get your sense of what to do next? It's interesting because I would argue that what you want to look at is not uh, actual price movement, but what may be happening behind the scenes. So this is kind of related actually to the European financials question. I've been bullish on the space because relative momentum was picking up, but there is a uh, a pretty nasty disaster situation that could be happening short term, which people are not really talking about. This is an example of data behind the scenes, where I it, I suspect, and I've been hearing rumblings of this, that there's uh, there's a lot of uh, off. Uh, off-putting positions or offset positions by a lot of banks that simply cannot settle on any trades related to Russia's stock market. Okay, mm-hmm. this is something that people are not really appreciating. When you have the stock market closed and you have things that are not changing or they're not trading on the Nasdaq because they might be on on OFAC lists, what ends up happening is that See, for people who don't know, this the Office of Foreign Asset Control is a treasury that actually enforces sanctions regimes. Right, exactly right. What ends up happening is that you end up having a lot of dealers that have. Uh, positions that can't offload and that can't settle. And that has all kinds of very strange butterfly effects, I think, that happen in the financial plumbing. So I actually think that what matters here is more of kind of behind the scenes. What are all these sanctions actually doing to the banking sector and European financials? If this Russia-Ukraine crisis does result in some kind of a sovereign debt uh, crisis, European financials are in a lot of trouble. The ECB is in a lot of trouble. Right, so uh, to me, it's more than just price action now because I don't think anybody really understands the plumbing that well because everyone just looks at charts instead of actually understanding what happens behind the scenes. Yeah. Ash, if I can jump in because I think it's worth unpicking this question to sanctions a bit more Please. because actually we haven't actually seen them yet. Um, the U.S. sanctions actually uh, the banks were given uh, a 30-day lead-in, um, so they don't come into force until March 26. So there's a bit of time for people to unwind their positions. So it's not going to be a cliff-edge disaster, but obviously it does mean that whatever effect the sanctions are going to have is not quite hitting yet. And the same really with the SWIFT ban in Europe. That's not coming into force until the 12th of March, um, and um, UK sanctions have now been brought into line with the US's. They were originally supposed to be with immediate effect, but then the Treasury, I think, rightly said, probably on the advice of the Bank of England, said, no, this isn't a good idea. So they're now on a 30-day time leading as well. So we're actually facing, I think, quite a turbulent month coming ahead to see what effect the sanctions that have already been announced are going to have and what effect sanctions that are still being announced. I mean, we've, we've come up with some more today. Mm-hmm. Um, and what more um, the West is going to come up with to throw at um, Putin and his oligarchs and the Russian, eco- the Russian economy, really. Um, Francis, and this is that, another thing we have to yeah. have you back on to talk about, because you really talked about sanctions uh, in, a, in a very sort of nuanced way. This is obviously a very heterogeneous and richly ramified series of sanctions. You've pointed out the distinction between uh, SWIFT sanctions uh, and dollar settlement system frank, uh, sanctions, and these are really important points for people to understand. We're going to have to have you back to do that. But I wanted to get in one quick final question. Uh, our audience knows the guests very well. Uh, and the question uh, for both of you is, I'm wondering, this comes from TC from the Real Vision site. And the question is, I'm wondering how much this demandful inflation is attached to stimulus. I believe, from my college economics days, uh, demand pull inflation is a Keynesian term uh, when you have aggregate demand outstripping aggregate supply and you get uh, demand pull. 
Yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll chime in on that real quick. Uh, yes, there's demand pull and cost push. The reality is that it's both. Even though the politicians seem to make it uh, make us think it's all about the supply side, uh, somehow people seem to forget that 40% of new cash being created in the last year and a half, two years, uh, that has nothing to do with inflation or demand pull. I mean, that, the whole concept is is utterly ridiculous. Well, you get to you get politicians who get to yell at, at businessmen, right? Well, yeah, well we, which is it, the, whole, the whole thing is silly. It's like when Biden. This is a non political statement, but when Biden said. Uh, you know, we want companies to lower their costs, but not their wages. It's like, are you kidding me? Wages are costs. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, we don't want to pick on one party in particular, but uh, this they is always suck. great risk for they the mill. From, yeah. yeah, for politicians uh, who can say things like, yeah, decrease your costs while increasing wages. Yeah, yeah, if I might, if I might jump in, I, I actually agree with, agree with Michael on this, that uh, particularly in America, actually, the effect of the stimulus checks and other things, the fiscal side, has been, I think, particularly contributing both to the growth that we're seeing now and to the inflation. The two do, two do tend to go hand in hand, I think, in recovery from a shock like this. It's actually quite hard to grow your way out of it without also, for a while, tolerating higher inflation. Um, and that, again, creates a dilemma for central banks. But by the way, let me just let me add, add to that real quick on this point. So, so this you know you always hear this argument that uh, you want to inflate away the debt, okay, but nobody ever talks about what that mechanically means. How do you inflate away government debt? Well, everybody makes more money. Wage income increases. It means your taxes as a percentage. You're getting more dollars, right? And then you can pay off that that liability. But what happens when you keep on adding spending on the government side? What happens when you're not actually increasing taxes? And uh, of course, you're going to get inflation. Right, it's like we have this strange environment where seemingly people are wanting to accept this MMT modern monetary theory argument, but they're forgetting that you actually need to tax to counter inflation. Oh, but by the way, if you try to tax Zuckerberg, that's not going to do anything to inflation. Yeah, I mean, MMT would argue that that um, you do have to tax to counter inflation. Actually, it's one of the things they say. Um, yeah, they do. Um, it's just that when inflation actually happens, they haven't been exactly false to suggest tax rises, but it is actually part of their theory that they use tax rise to use taxes to control inflation. Um, um, but I think I think the the um, the problem is really that that um, how you inflate away debt. Um, yes, you use taxes and so forth, but actually, mainly what you do is you quote it in relation to GDP. Um, you quote nominal, nominal, and use nominal figures, and it magically, magically disappears as your um, nominal GDP improves, and your nominal, nominal GDP can improve because of inflation. Well, guys, we're about out of time here, but this has been a spectacular conversation. Uh, I know we managed to get in more in 30 minutes than I thought possible, uh, but obviously so much more to talk about. We're going to have to have both of you back on the platform to do hour-long deep dive conversations uh, so we can continue to explore this, uh, these topics even more. Uh, Francis, Michael, thank you both for joining us. Appreciate it. And hopefully Real Vision lowers its cost, but not its wages. <laughs> yeah, I, I support that. I support that. I want to get, make sure that uh, we get paid. Uh, thank you so much for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'll be back tomorrow on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thank you again for watching. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.